read Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, and I'm going to read it in just a moment, not immediately um, as I get into the message, but I want to talk about some dangers that can damage your marriage. Obviously, no one sets out from the altar and says, I want to damage my marriage. Uh, we, we all begin with great hopes. And everybody who's at the wedding has great hopes. And it's a happy time and so on. And of course, we all want satisfying and happy marriages. But we live in a world that is evil, that is against us. And it influences us all more than we realize. And many Christian couples, I find, drift, sometimes inadvertently, they drift into these dangers, not realizing that, you know, it could sink the ship. Uh, It can damage, sometimes even destroy marriages. And of course, no marriage is perfect, even the best of them, because we all fall short. But I think when we avoid the world's ways and we apply the wisdom of God's Word, we can have satisfying, healthy marriages. And I want you to keep in mind, as I've emphasized throughout this series, that the main goal in our marriage is not happiness, it's to glorify God. Now, of course, when we have happy marriages, it does glorify God. Um, But our marriages are to be a picture of Christ and His church. And so we are to display to the world, and Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, we even are displaying God's glory to the angelic hosts in some way. Uh, But we are to display to the world Christ's faithful, holy covenant love for His church. And as John Piper has often pointed out, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so as we as married couples are satisfied in the Lord, our marriages will glorify Him, and that is the aim of marriage. Now in the paragraph um, that I'm going to read, um, before Paul gives explicit commands to wives and husbands, starting in verse 22 and, and following, this is right before that, and in verses 15 to 17 of Ephesians 5, he gives these uh, general commands. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men and women, but wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I'm not going to explain all of those uh, comments in detail. I did that in a message called Walking Wisely when we taught through Ephesians. Um, But I want to apply them to marriage in a general way, and make the point this morning that because we do live in evil times, avoid the world's dangers and apply God's wisdom to your marriage. And if you're here and you're single and you're saying, oh boy, this doesn't apply to me, um, it does apply because these principles really apply to all relationships. 
And so whether it's parent-child, family, extended family relationships, friendships, um, the things that I'm going to mention are damaging to all relationships. But I am specifically going to be talking about the marriage relationship. So the first point, the main thing I'm going to deal with is that this evil world that we live in presents many dangers that will damage your marriage if you're not careful. And of course, some of these are more deadly than, than others. But if you fall into more than one of these, then it multiplies and you've got more difficulties in the marriage. So I'm going to give you a dirty dozen, if you will, of uh, dangers that will damage your marriage or, as I said, any relationship. First of all is poor communication. Uh, poor communication will damage your marriage, and it's one of the most prevalent causes of marital problems. It can take a number of different forms. Back in Ephesians 4.15, Paul there, speaking to the church, so this applies to all relationships in the church, says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all uh, aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And so that means that as the head, Christ is to be the Lord of all your communication. Um, before you speak, you should stop and say, wait a minute, is this word going to please Christ and glorify him? And if not, I shouldn't say it. Um, and then, as Paul says, they're speaking the truth in love. Are my words truthful? And are they loving? Sometimes we'll say, well, you know, that's just the way I feel, and we blast. Well, all right, that's truthful, it's not loving. Or sometimes in, maybe you want to tiptoe around because you think, oh, if I tell the truth, it's going to cause problems, and so you're loving, you think, but you're not truthful. And eventually that backfires because it breaks down communication. Your mate doesn't really know where you're at or how you feel. And so eventually the relationship is strained. Uh, any deception in a relationship causes ultimate damage because invariably it will come out. And when your mate realizes you haven't been truthful, then it erodes trust. And trust is the glue, the strong thing that holds relationships together. And uh, I can't say more about this one point just due to time this morning, but on the church website I have a one-page uh, summary called Some Biblical uh, Principles for Communication with a number of Bible verses. And if you're struggling in that area, I encourage you to go and um, look up the verses, talk about them with the person you're having the communication difficulties with. A second danger that will damage your marriage is anger and abusive speech. Uh, sinful anger is always, always, always destructive to relationships. It never brings two people close. It always drives them apart and causes division. Uh, James, in James 1, 19 and 20, 
says, but everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And then he explains, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Or in uh, Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, let no unwholesome, and the word is literally rotten, think of rotten tomatoes, let no rotten speech come out of your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification. That means to build up the other person according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And then just two verses later, he adds, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, clamor means yelling and slander, be put away from you, along with all malice. Or I hope you are familiar with Proverbs 15.1 that says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, all of those verses make the assumption that you are able to control your anger. And you say, well, I just got a short fuse. Sorry, that doesn't cut it. You're able to control your anger. And the illustration I've often used, which I think I got from Jay Adams years ago, was you and your spouse are having an argument and the phone rings. And it's the pastor calling. Do you pick up a phone and say, what do you want, you idiot? You know, no. You immediately control your anger and say, oh, hi, pastor. How are you doing? Yes, yes, we're doing well. And other than being hypocritical, what are you doing? You're controlling your anger because you don't want me to know that you're in the middle of a battle. So you're able to do it. You just don't want to do it. You know, and we want to use anger to inflict something on the other person and uh, cause uh, harm or damage or get even or whatever it may be. It's interesting, when you look at the very first counseling session in the Bible, if you want to put that in quotes, counseling, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 6, God confronts Cain. And the question God asks is, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Now, God wasn't fishing for information. God knew why Cain was angry. He wanted Cain to think about his own anger. And at the root of all anger, as embarrassing as it is to admit, is selfishness. I didn't get my way, and I want my way, and you know, so we throw a three-year-old temper tantrum to get our way. That's really the root of all anger. And, uh, you know, it's also challenging the sovereignty of God when you're angry. Because you're basically saying, God, I don't like these circumstances I'm in, and it's frustrating to me, and I want my circumstances different. And so you're, you're not submitting to a sovereign God who's brought these frustrating circumstances, perhaps to teach you patience and kindness and other fruits of the Spirit. Uh, and, and so you have to bow and say, wait a minute, I am being selfish, Lord. I am fighting against your sovereign will, and uh, I, my anger is sin. And in marriage, partners often use anger to intimidate the other person. It's a thing of control. 
I'm going to prove I am in control and, and she is not, and that kind of uh, behavior. But as I said, anger is never productive in relationships. Never. It always causes distance. It always causes a breakdown. And so it is a danger for your marriage or any relationship. A third thing related is bitterness and a lack of forgiveness will damage your marriage. In Ephesians 4.31 again, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then he adds in the next verse, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the antidote to bitterness is forgiveness. And over the years, what happens in relationships like in marriage, couples wrong each other. And if they don't forgive, it slowly builds a wall between them. And uh, the resentment builds. And so it's vital to keep short accounts with your mate. You get into an argument before you leave for work. First chance you get, call home and ask forgiveness. Ask forgiveness. Um, and when you do that, you, you don't say, you know, I'm sorry I yelled at you this morning, but your stubbornness just makes me angry. You see, when you do it that way, you're blaming her for your sin. That's a wrong way to ask forgiveness. Or don't just say, well, I'm sorry that I yelled at you. Okay, you're telling how you feel, but you're not owning responsibility for your sin. She probably feels sorry too. The proper way to deal with it is to say, you know, God convicted me that I was sinning when I yelled at you this morning, and I've asked God to forgive me, and I'm, I'm asking, will you forgive me? And I am trying to work on it, but I was really wrong. And don't blame. Maybe she was wrong too. Just own up to your side and ask forgiveness. Now, as Christians, we don't have the option to say no. Jesus made it pretty clear, if you don't forgive, the Father won't forgive. So it's pretty important to forgive. But by saying, I forgive you, then the relationship can be restored. A fourth danger to your marriage is sexual immorality, and that begins on the thought level, and that will damage your marriage. And I emphasize the thought level because Jesus did. Uh, he said that all immorality begins in the heart, begins in the thought level, and that means, guys, if you're secretly lusting after some woman other than your wife or you're secretly looking at pornography, you're sabotaging your marriage and you're on a slippery slope that is going to lead to immorality at some point. More seriously, in Matthew 5, Jesus said that if you don't take radical measures to cut that sin out of your life, he used the extreme example of plucking out your own eye or cutting off your hand, then he said you're headed for hell. 
That's a lot stronger than I would have put it if he'd asked my advice, but he didn't. And that's what Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 5. And so it's really, really, really serious that you get a handle on mental lust. Now, Christian scholars differ on this. My understanding is God permits divorce in cases of sexual immorality, not mental adultery. And there are Christian counselors who say, if your husband is involved in pornography, you have a right to divorce him. I disagree with that. But if there's been physical adultery, God permits it. But, hear my but, I believe forgiveness and restoration of the relationship is always the best. Because, again, what is our goal in marriage? To glorify God. What does the world do when there's infidelity? Get a divorce and move on. What should Christians do? There should be repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Now, it's not easy. I am not pretending or saying that it's easy. It's very, very difficult. Um, But in the Old Testament, God often accuses Israel, his people, of spiritual adultery. And whenever they repented and came back, he forgave them again and again and again. Now, in Jeremiah 3, God says, finally, I'm going to divorce you because I have just forgiven you over and over and over and over, and you keep returning to your adultery. And he was referring to the Babylonian captivity there. But that was only way after centuries of their unfaithfulness. So again, my counsel to couples where there's been that sin, yes, it causes a lot of damage, but if you want to glorify God, there has to be forgiveness and rebuilding of trust in the relationship. A fifth danger, and I have to cover all these more quickly, I could do a sermon on about every one of them, Uh, but a fifth is alcohol and drug abuse. That will damage your marriage, and you say, well, we're Christians. Yes, I know, but I have seen many Christian homes torn apart by drug and alcohol abuse. Now, many in our day will say, well, these are diseases. Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, they are sin. The Bible is very clear about that. It's a deed of the flesh, drunkenness. Um, But they are sins that have a physiological side to them. So a person who gets into drug and alcohol use becomes physically addicted to them and psychologically addicted to them. And then... People will do all sorts of things. They will lie. They will steal in order to get that substance to uh, satisfy their craving. Here's why I don't agree that it's only a disease. Because if you do that, you are denying the person's responsibility for it. Here is a fact. There's not a single person who has ever become an alcoholic or a drug addict without taking a first drink or a first hit of the drug. If you avoid it, you won't ever get into that. 
And when people get into it, then they are responsible for what they do with it. And uh, as I said, drunkenness is a deed of the flesh. Now, acknowledging it to be sin is the first step in healing because God is in the business of helping sinners overcome sin. And so it has to be acknowledged, God, I have sinned against you. Now, the Bible does allow drinking alcoholic beverages in moderation, uh, but at the same time, I want to warn you and say it can be dangerous, and here's how. Sometimes, due to the stress of life, people take a drink or they pop a pill and they go, oh man, that just relieves the stress and I feel better. That is sin. That is sin. Why? Because God is in the business of relieving anxiety and distress. And God is the one we are to turn to in all of life's stresses and trust him. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And his peace then will flood your heart. So, turning to those things is a sin that will damage your marriage. A sixth danger that will damage your marriage is selfishness. And it takes many forms. As I said earlier, selfishness is the root cause of sinful anger. A selfish husband insists he is right and he won't listen to or yield to other views. He thinks that's going to somehow sabotage his authority and pride is, of course, at the heart of that. A selfish husband doesn't think about his wife's needs. He only thinks about his needs. Um, he will buy whatever he wants for himself and then deny his wife the right to buy things for herself. Spends time with his friends when he wants to, but denies his wife that privilege with her friends because she has to be there to serve him. Life revolves around him. And it can be the other side, her too, but selfishness is damaging to marriages or to relationships. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his treatment of the marriage section in Ephesians, writes, the real cause of failure ultimately in marriage is always self and the various manifestations of self. Of course, that's the cause of trouble everywhere and in every realm. Self and selfishness are the greatest disrupting forces in the world. And Jesus said, if we want to follow him, the number one requirement is deny self on a daily basis. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, here's the first requirement, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And the second great commandment, as Jesus said, is that we love our neighbor as much as we do, in fact, love ourselves. And my closest neighbor is my wife. And so I have a daily assignment to, to kill my selfishness and love her as much as I care about myself. A seventh danger is competition instead of cooperation. That will damage your marriage. Competing with your mate. And I find that many Christian couples are vying for dominance in the relationship, in their marriage. Uh, 
and it often comes through in the way that they exchange barbed comments, sarcastic put-downs. Uh, if you confront them on it, they'll say, oh, well, we're just joking. No, you're not. No, you're not. If it's cutting, if the other person is the brunt of it, and they are put down, it's, it's not funny. Um, Paul says in the marriage passage that we are members of one another. You know, if you have an arm that's competing with your body, you've got a problem. Your body is to cooperate. All the members work together to make it work right. And as we get older, we realize one little part I hardly knew about can cause problems for my whole body when it stops working correctly. And so in marriage, we are members of one another. In the body of Christ, uh, we are members of one another. And so we have to cooperate and not compete. Before our wedding, I told Marla, I said, I don't want a smashing cake in each other's face at the wedding. I detest that. I, I think that shows competition. I'm going to get you. I'll get you. Ha, ha, ha. No, I said, we're starting our marriage out cooperating. And often early in our marriage, when she would be upset with me, not always without cause, um, I would try to say, look, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm on your side, and I'm not out to win, and if I was wrong, I want to own up to it and correct it, but when a team starts fighting with itself, they're going to lose, and so we have to cooperate, we have to work together against the enemy who's out there. And so in any argument or disagreement, your aim should not be to win unless there's a serious doctrinal or moral principle at stake. Other than that, I don't need to win. I need to understand. We need to grow in understanding. But we need to cooperate. An eighth danger is financial irresponsibility. That can damage your marriage. And I have read in various places that disagreements over money are one of the major causes of divorce. Couples get into fights over money. Sometimes in the, um, I might say, humorous providence of God, a freewheeling, impulsive spender marries a skinflint cheapskate who won't buy anything unless it's on sale or at the thrift store or absolutely vital to survival in life. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to uh, say, as they said in Apollo 13, Houston, we've got a problem here. Uh, you're going to have conflict and you're going to have to work harder if that's your various styles at communicating. The starting place is to understand what does the Word of God say about financial management. And if you're not clued in on that, uh, we have a class beginning January 28th, second hour here, Sunday morning, uh, called Financial Peace University, led by Dan Barton. And um, you can register for that online, and I would recommend that. Now... If you add to this problem of finances, the previous problem, couples are competing 
not cooperating, they get into spending wars that digs you deeper and deeper in debt. You know, the husband goes out and buys a new motorcycle because, hey, I needed one. I want one. And the wife says, well, if you can do that, I'm going to Hawaii with my friends, man. And so she puts on the credit card a trip to Hawaii, and they're just digging themselves deeper and deeper into debt, and debt creates tension in a marriage. You know, you got all these bill collectors after you and debts that are mounting and the credit card interest is exponentially growing and you don't need something else in your marriage to create more tension. Marriage is hard enough as it is. So you got to deal with financial matters God's way and work out a plan to get out of debt, live within your means, and that class will teach you how to do that. A ninth um, danger is mismanaging your time. Mismanaging your time will damage your marriage. Paul says in the text we read, if we're wise, we'll make the most of our time. Now, it's very easy where you fall into the workaholic trap and you neglect your family, or else it's very easy as a family to just get overloaded in your schedule with all these activities. And um, often a husband and wife are going in opposite directions, and they're busy with their thing, and communication breaks down. They aren't really uh, talking together and spending time together. And there's a very frequent pattern that happens in marriages where early on in the marriage, a husband's just getting going in his career, and he's got to book it, put in the hours, and uh, please the boss, or he's afraid he could get fired, he won't get the promotion, so he's working extra hours, or he's taking long trips and doing all of this, and not spending time at home. Meanwhile, maybe they have a child or two, and uh, the wife is busy tending the home front, and little kids take a lot of time and everything, and maybe she's working too. And so she's busy, or very busy with all of her responsibilities. And without really planning it, the couple begins just to drift apart because they are not managing their time well. Meanwhile, to make it worse, at the guy's work, the devil brings along an attractive young woman who takes an interest in him. And uh, she is able, unlike the overwhelmed wife at home, to give him affirmation and attention, to tell him what a wonderful worker he is on the job and how lucky his wife must be. And if the wife is working, she may have a man at work who fills the need that her overworked husband who's neglecting her can't. And he just listens to her, and he's so understanding and sympathetic. And so you can see how the devil just builds a um, situation that just a match is going to make it go off, and there's going to be immorality and break down the marriage. And at the root of all of that, again, you're not managing your time as God would want you to, and you're letting your marriage relationship take a back seat to these other lesser important things. A tenth 
expectation, or, or I mean the damage, uh, danger that will damage is wrong expectations and goals. Wrong expectations and goals. And many couples enter marriage with unstated expectations that are different. For example, if a husband expects that his wife is going to stay at home and keep house and, and uh, care for the children, and she expects that she's going to be a success in her career, you got a problem brewing there. Um, or if a wife expects that her new husband is going to make a pile of money so they can move up in the world, get a better home, better car, all that stuff, and uh, his expectation is, I just want to live simply and give the rest away to world missions. Again, there's a train wreck in the making there. They have different unexpressed expectations. So the solution is to, again, talk about your expectations and set biblical goals that you both can agree on. If you put career success over marital success, wrong goal. Uh, if you are saying, we want to live to impress others by our affluent lifestyle, wrong goal. Um, Paul warns about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 to 10, where he says, For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But, here's the warning, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then he explains, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. Jesus in Matthew 6 warns, rather than seeking all of the stuff that the pagans live for, he says our goal, Matthew 6.33, very familiar verse, he says, but seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now every couple needs to sit down and talk about and work out what that looks like in terms of uh, time management, financial management, and all of that. How do we seek first God's kingdom with our time, with the money God allots to us? And it's not a once-for-all discussion because that can change as you're in different phases of life. It'll look different when you have young children in the home and maybe later in the empty nest phase and so on. Eleventh danger is worldliness. Worldliness will damage your marriage. Now, what do I mean by worldliness? I mean adopting the world's values, the world's goals, and the world's ways, as opposed to the um, goals, values, goals, and ways that are in God's Word. You have to be careful with worldliness because we live in the world. And it just kind of seeps into the cracks of your life when you're not looking. And so we need to be alert to it. The world, for example, tells us the goal of marriage is to make you happy. And if you're not happy in your marriage, you deserve happiness. Get a divorce and move on. You say, well, that's sure not Christian. No, it's not, but I have heard 
Christian counselors advise Christian unhappy marriage partners that way. You deserve happiness. Boy, that sounds right. Boom, I'm out of here. I know a couple right now, not in this church, that she was unhappy. And so she divorced. And she's looking for happiness elsewhere. Uh, the world says, well, the roles of men and women in marriage are up for grabs. And so it doesn't matter who does what. Just, you know, work it out. It's all equal and egalitarian. Again, you say, well, that's not Christian. True, but many, many Christians embrace that these days. The Bible says husbands are to provide loving leadership in the home. Wives are to be respectful and to submit to their husbands. The world says, stand up for your rights. You know, you don't have to take it. That's the world's way. The Bible says, no, regard the other person's needs and rights above your own. The world says, accumulating stuff is going to make you happy. Get all the stuff you can. The Bible said, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So be careful about worldliness. It's a mindset. And then the last danger is just drifting from the Lord. Drifting from the Lord will damage your marriage. And at weddings, I almost always describe marriage as a triangle. God is at the apex. The couple are at the two points. The closer each one draws to the Lord, to the, Lord the closer they draw to each other. Conversely, the further they go from the Lord, the further they will be from each other. Um, that's true in a number of, for a number of reasons, because as you grow close to the Lord, you're going to be developing the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever looked at the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and noticed how relational each of these qualities is? The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's pretty relational. Joy. You say, well, is that relational? Yes, because it's better to be around a joyful person than a grump. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are relational qualities. On the other hand, the deeds of the flesh, which are just a few verses earlier. I can't read the whole list, but it includes immorality. Strife, jealousy, anger, and drunkenness. And obviously those qualities damage loving relationships. So at the core, guard your relationship with the Lord. Spend time with the Lord each day and grow in the fruit of the Spirit. So those are the dangers. Well... The antidote to them is found in the Word of God. And uh, God's Word gives us the wisdom that we need to avoid these worldly dangers. And let me just refresh again the commandment that Paul gives uh, that we read earlier in Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Therefore, 
Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, to be careful how you walk, you've got to avoid those dangers I just mentioned because it's easy to just fall into those if you're not being careful. Um, Paul says, don't walk as unwise men, but as wise. Where do we find wisdom? Well, Proverbs 2.6 says, The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And of course, he has revealed that wisdom for us in his word. Um, the word of God contains the wisdom of God. And then Paul says, discern what the will of the Lord is. And the will of the Lord is that you and your family would please and glorify Him in all things. His will is that you would grow to love Him and uh, more deeply as you get to know Him through His Word. His will is that you glorify Him by a holy life, by uh, a life set apart to Him, beginning on the thought level. His will is that you would grow in love for others as well as for Him. Uh, even as he has loved you. And, of course, his will is the famous golden rule that you would treat others as you would want them to treat you. And we could go on and on, but the place where you are to display his will, the, the laboratory, the proving ground, is your family. That's our closest relationship. And so our homes are to be a display of God's wisdom, His will, as we glorify Him in those relationships. Now let me end the message with just two action points, because I realize I've hit you with a lot of things. First of all, if you're not spending consistent time in God's Word, start there. It's the first part of the year. You can catch up on the last six days and read through the Bible in a year. If you've never done that, I commend it highly. There are many Bible reading programs you can get online. Just type in Bible reading plan and you'll get a zillion of them. Uh, or if that's too much, just plan to read through the New Testament a couple of times this year. That's pretty easy to do. But the point is, be consistent in the Word of God and as you come to it, pray and ask God to reveal Himself to you. Ask Him, Lord, I need to apply this to my life. Give me wisdom in how to do that. And the Word will do its work in you. A second action point. Sit down with your spouse with the printed version of this message and evaluate your marriage according to these 12 dangers. How are we doing? I hope that none of you check off 12 out of 12 that you've got problems with. But if you do, just pick the top two or three at the most. Don't be overwhelmed. Just narrow it down. Our number one need is this one. And number two is this one. Okay, go to work on those. When those get under control, you can move on to the others. And remember, again, the main goal in your marriage is not to be happy. It's to glorify God. Now, of course... God is glorified as you have a happy marriage. But the, the main goal is, God, we want your name to be exalted through our home. And so help us with these points. In the preface to his book, When Sinners Say I Do, 
Dave Harvey cites the Puritan pastor Thomas Watson who said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And then Harvey applies this to marriage. He says, when sin becomes bitter, marriage becomes sweet. And then he points out how the gospel is central to a marriage that is sweet. And that means this. Everything I've said this morning is built on the fact that you have come to Christ as a sinner and said, Oh God, I know I've sinned against you and I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and I need the new life that only you can give. And as you trust in Christ and what he did on the cross, he shed his blood to pay the penalty you deserve. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you and he gives you the power and the motivation to have a life, all of your relationships that bring honor and glory to God. And so don't miss that. That is the foundation of everything I've said this morning, that you're rightly related to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. The Bible gives the promise that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise that is. It means you don't have to clean up your life, get rid of all your sin first. You come to Christ first. And then he, by his spirit and through his power and his love, begins the cleanup project as that little book, My Heart, Christ's Home, explains. And so if you've never come to Christ, I encourage you right now just to say, Lord God, I need Jesus. I need you to come in and invade my life and take it over. I need you to be my Lord and my Savior. Or if you're a Christian and there's a lot of damage in your marriage, again, I encourage you. Go before the Lord and start spending time with Him each day. Don't blame your mate. Don't start accusing or all of that. Just deal with your end of it. And then pick whichever one may be what you need and begin asking God for strength to improve in those areas. Dear Father, thank You for Your grace, Your forgiveness your patience, your kindness with us. Lord, I do pray you would heal homes in our church where there's problems and tension and conflict. That our homes would be a testimony of the grace of Christ. And we need your spirit for that. And we ask... For your name's sake, your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.